The Law School of America, non est factum, Latin for it is not deed, is a defense in contract law that allows a signing party to escape performance of an agreement which is fundamentally different from what he or she intended to execute or sign. A claim of non est factum means that the signature on the contract was signed by mistake, without knowledge of its meaning. A successful plea would make the contract void ab initio. According to Saunders v. Anglia Building Society, applied in Peatland v. Cullen, the strict requirements necessary for a successful plea are generally that. 1. The person pleading non est factum must belong to class of persons, who through no fault of their own, are unable to have any understanding of the purpose of the particular document because of blindness, illiteracy or some other disability. The disability must be one requiring the reliance on others for advice as to what they are signing. 2. The signatory must have made a fundamental mistake as to the nature of the contents of the document being signed, including its practical effects. 3. The document must have been radically different from one intended to be signed. Non est factum is difficult to claim as it does not allow for negligence on the part of the signatory, for example, failure to read a contract before signing it, or carelessness, para 12 will not allow for non est factum. Furthermore, the court has noted that there is a heavy onus that must be discharged to establish this defense as it is an exceptional defense. Notable Examples In Peatlin v. Cullen, 1975, the defendant, Peatlin, was illiterate and could speak very little English, but still signed a document he believed to be a receipt for $50 but which actually gave Cullen the option to purchase Peatlin's land, which he exercised. Peatlin refused to sign the contract for sale, alleging he had been deceived, and Cullen sought specific performance. The court found that because of Peatland's mistaken belief which was not because of his carelessness, his claim of non est factum was successful. The court noted that even if he had been careless, Cullen was not an innocent person without knowledge or reason to doubt the validity of the appellant's signature. In Lloyd's Bank v. Waterhouse a father acted as a guarantor to his son's debt when purchasing a farm. The father was illiterate and signed the bank document under the belief that he was acting as the guarantor for the farm only, when the contract was actually for all the debt accumulated by the son. As he was illiterate, this was a mistake as to the document signed and the father was successful in claiming non est factum. Another notable case on non est factum is Foster v. McKinnon, where an elderly man signed a bill of exchange but was only shown the back of it. He was granted a new trial. Illustratively, in Ford v. Perpetual Trustees Victoria Limited, the son of Mr. Ford, appellant, had arranged a loan from a bank to arrange for the purchase of a cleaning business, by using his father's residential property as security. When he defaulted, the bank sought to enforce its rights under the loan and mortgage agreements. Because Mr. Ford was illiterate, though capable of signing his name, suffered from a significant congenital intellectual impairment, and had no understanding of the particulars of the agreement or consequences of non-payment, the judge at appeal found that he had been the pawn of his son throughout, and his mind was a mere channel through which the will of his son operated. The court dismissed the argument that the appellant had been careless as that would presume that he was capable of turning his mind to the issue and making judgments. It ruled that Mr. Ford lacked the legal capacity, and therefore the contract was void for non est factum. This example illustrates an application of Peatland v. Cullen as it depicts the necessary level of incapacity and level of misunderstanding required to shift the heavy burden of the party raising the defense. The parole evidence rule is a rule in the Anglo-American common law that governs what kinds of evidence parties to a contract dispute can introduce when trying to determine the specific terms of a contract. 
The rule also prevents parties who have reduced their agreement to a final written document from later introducing other evidence, such as the content of oral discussions from earlier in the negotiation process, as evidence of a different intent as to the terms of the contract. The rule provides that extrinsic evidence is inadmissible to vary a written contract. The term parole derives from the Anglo-Norman French parole or parole, meaning word of mouth or verbal, and in medieval times referred to oral pleadings in a court case. The rule's origins lie in English contract law, but has been adopted in other common law jurisdictions, however there are now some differences between application of the rule in different jurisdictions. For instance, in the U.S., a common misconception is that it is a rule of evidence, like the federal rules of evidence, but that is not the case, whereas in England it is indeed a rule of evidence. The supporting rationale for this is that since the contracting parties have reduced their agreement to a single and final writing, extrinsic evidence of past agreements or terms should not be considered when interpreting that writing, as the parties had decided to ultimately leave them out of the contract. In other words, one may not use evidence made prior to the written contract to contradict the writing. Overview The rule applies to parole evidence, as well as other extrinsic evidence, such as written correspondence that does not form a separate contract, regarding a contract. If a contract is in writing and final to at least one term, integrated, parole or extrinsic evidence will generally be excluded. However, there are a number of exceptions to this general rule, including for partially integrated contracts, agreements with separate consideration, to resolve ambiguities, or to establish contract defenses. To take an example, Carl agrees in writing to sell Betty a car for $1,000, but later, Betty argues that Carl earlier told her that she would only need to pay Carl $800. The parole evidence rule would generally prevent Betty from testifying to this alleged conversation because the testimony, $800, would directly contradict the written contract's terms, $1,000. The precise extent of the rule varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. As a preliminary or threshold issue, the court may first determine if the agreement was in fact totally reduced to a written document or, in U.S. terminology, fully integrated. In the case of State Rail Authority of New South Wales v. Heath Outdoor Proprietary Limited McHugh J. held the parole evidence rule has no operation until it is first determined that all the terms of the contract are in writing. This threshold question applies even in those jurisdictions that apply a very strong form of the parole evidence rule called the Four Corners Rule. Beyond that, the exceptions to the parole evidence rule vary between jurisdictions. Examples of circumstances where extrinsic evidence may be admissible in different jurisdictions include To prove the parties to a contract. A written agreement to sell land signed by Mrs. Kenny at times made reference to Mr. Kenny, and the court held that oral evidence was admissible and that she was signing for herself and as an agent for her husband. To prove a condition precedent. In Pym v. Campbell, 1865, Pym entered into a written contract with Campbell to sell an interest in an invention. The court allowed Campbell to include the oral terms of acknowledgement that the sale was subject to an inspection and approval by an engineer. The engineer did not approve the invention. To prove that the written document is only part of the contract is in Hospital Products Limited v. United States Surgical Corporation, where the court found for a written contract to be only part of an agreement. In State Rail Authority of NSW v. Heath Outdoor Proprietary Limited, the court held that the parole evidence rule is persuasive and the evidentiary burden is on the party wishing to establish that the whole contract was not in writing. To prove that an implied term of custom or trade usage or past dealings is part of a contract even if not in a written agreement, as in Hutton v. Warren, 
were the party wishing to add the term bears the evidentiary burden and in this case, a lease had to be read in the light of established custom. To prove what is true consideration, not something added to avoid taxes. To prove the term or promise is part of a collateral contract. To aid in the interpretation of existing terms. To resolve ambiguity using the contra proferentem rule. To show, particularly in California, that, 1. In light of all the circumstances surrounding the making of the contract, the contract is actually ambiguous, regardless of whether the contract's meaning appears unambiguous at first glance, 2. Thus necessitating the use of extrinsic evidence to determine its actual meaning. To disprove the validity of the contract. To show that an unambiguous term in the contract is in fact a mistaken transcription of a prior valid agreement. Such a claim must be established by clear and convincing evidence, and not merely by the preponderance of the evidence. To correct mistakes. To show wrongful conduct such as misrepresentation, fraud, duress, unconscionability, or illegal purpose on the part of one or both parties. To show that consideration has not actually been paid. For example, if the contract states that A has paid B $1,000 in exchange for a painting, B can introduce evidence that A had never actually conveyed the $1,000. To identify the parties, especially if the parties have changed names. To imply or incorporate a term of the contract. To make changes in the contract after the original final contract has been agreed to. That is, oral statements can be admitted unless they are barred by a clause in the written contract. In order for evidence to fall within this rule, it must involve either, 1, a written or oral communication made prior to execution of the written contract, or, 2, an oral communication made contemporaneous with execution of the written contract. Evidence of a later communication will not be barred by this rule, as it is admissible to show a later modification of the contract, although it might be inadmissible for some other reason, such as the statute of frauds. Similarly, evidence of a collateral agreement, one that would naturally and normally be included in a separate writing, will not be barred. For example, if A contracts with B to paint B's house for $1,000, B can introduce extrinsic evidence to show that A also contracted to paint B's storage shed for $100. The agreement to paint the shed would logically be in a separate document from the agreement to paint the house. Though its name suggests that it is a procedural evidence rule, the consensus of courts and commentators is that the parole evidence rule constitutes substantive contract law. Examples The parole evidence rule is a common trap for consumers. For example, Health Club Contracts You enroll in a health club, and the salesperson tells you that the contract can be cancelled. You later decide you would like to cancel, but the written contract provides that it is non-cancellable. The oral promises of the salesperson are generally non-enforceable. However, the salesperson by misleading you into the terms of the contract constitutes a misrepresentation and you may seek to rescind the contract. It may also be a violation of consumer protection law, which may have its own remedies. Auto Sales Agreements You purchase a used car, and the salesperson tells you it is good as new, but the contract provides that the sale is as is. Again, in most circumstances the written contract controls. However, this may constitute misrepresentation if it exceeds reasonably accepted puffing or dealer's talk. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Timeshares. While in certain jurisdictions and in certain circumstances, a consumer may have a right of rescission, Some people attend real estate sales presentations at which they may feel pressured into immediately signing binding contracts. Evidence that the contract was entered into under duress will not be precluded by the parole evidence rule. Specific Jurisdictions 
United States. In order for the rule to be effective, the contract in question must first be a final integrated writing, it must, in the judgment of the court, be the final agreement between the parties, as opposed to a mere draft, for example. A final agreement is either a partial or complete integration, provided that it has an agreement on its face indicating its finality. If it contains some, but not all, of the terms as to which the parties have agreed then it is a partial integration. This means that the writing was a final agreement between the parties, and not mere preliminary negotiations, as to some terms, but not as to others. On the other hand, if the writing were to contain all of the terms as to which the parties agreed, then it would be a complete integration. One way to ensure that the contract will be found to be a final and complete integration is through the inclusion of a merger clause, which recites that the contract is, in fact, the whole agreement between the parties. However, many modern cases have found merger clauses to be only a rebuttable presumption. The importance of the distinction between partial and complete integrations is relevant to what evidence is excluded under the parole evidence rule. For both complete and partial integrations, evidence contradicting the writing is excluded under the parole evidence rule. However, for a partial integration, terms that supplement the writing are admissible. To put it mildly, this can be an extremely subtle and subjective distinction. To put it simply, one, if the parties intend a complete integration of the contract terms, no parole evidence within the scope of agreement is permitted. Two, if the parties intended a partial integrated agreement, no parole evidence that contradicts anything integrated is permitted. And, three, if the parole evidence is collateral, meaning it regards a different agreement, and does not contradict the integrated terms, and are not terms any reasonable person would have always naturally integrate, then the rule does not apply and the evidence is admissible. In a minority of U.S. states, Florida, Colorado and Wisconsin, the parole evidence rule is extremely strong and extrinsic evidence is always barred from being used to interpret a contract. This is called the Four Corners Rule, and it is traditional or old. In a Four Corners Rule jurisdiction, there are two basic rules. First, the court will never allow parole evidence if the parties intended a full and completely integrated agreement, and second, the court would only turn to parole evidence if the terms available are wholly ambiguous. The policy is to prevent lying, to protect against doubtful veracity, to enable parties to rely dearly on written contracts, and for judicial efficiency. In most jurisdictions there are numerous exceptions to this rule, and in those jurisdictions, extrinsic evidence may be admitted for various purposes. This is called the admission rule. It favors liberalizing the admission of evidence to determine if the contract was fully integrated and to determine if the parole evidence is relevant. In these jurisdictions, such as California, one can bring in parole evidence even if the contract is unambiguous on its face, if the parole evidence creates ambiguity. The policy is to get to the actual truth, sometimes. The third and final admissibility rule is that under the UCC section 2-202, parole evidence cannot contradict a writing intended to be the final expression of the agreement integrated but may be explained or supplemented by, a, a course of dealing slash usage of trade slash course of performance, and by, b, evidence of consistent additional terms unless the writing was also intended to be a complete and exclusive statement of the terms of the agreement. Additional information on the parole evidence rule may be found in Restatement, 2nd, of Contract Section 213. The Law School of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike License. The text has been modified for audio.
The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America